Yeah? Branson drinks water. All right. I suppose the habit of me and Stephanie drinking a lot of water is that is during our sports playing days. Uh, you've probably noticed us drinking quite a bit of water. We can't seem to kick the habit. But those sports days are long gone, but I still find myself thirsty all the time. Of course, we all need water, and we all know that we need water. My doctor tells me to shoot for a gallon a day. But there's another basic element that we all need if we are to flourish as human beings. If we are to live abundant lives, fully human lives, lives of joy and satisfaction and love, there's another basic element we need. Unlike H2O, however, many of us don't even know how much we need it. In fact, we don't even know what it is that we need. Jesus calls this basic element living water. Living water is that basic element we all need to flourish and grow and mature as human beings, at least according to Jesus. But he's not talking about H2O. For Jesus, water becomes a metaphor that stands for something much deeper. Water becomes a signpost that points to an even greater human need than literal water. But what could we possibly need more than water? This question is taken into consideration in the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. And this is the Gospel of, of John, chapter 4. If we listen closely enough, we may find ourselves getting thirsty. And if we keep on listening, we may just find that our thirst has been quenched by something that's more than water. Before we hear our story, let's pray. Lord Jesus, may your gospel meet every need of ours. May your gospel satisfy every hunger. And may your gospel quench every thirst. Amen. It seems appropriate this morning to not only read our text, but to see it. And you too, as a congregation, have a part. Near the very end of our story, you'll find on the screen words for the congregation. So when we get there, I invite you to read that together aloud. I invite um, our characters to take their place. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making more disciples and baptizing more than John, although Jesus' disciples were baptizing, not Jesus himself. Therefore, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. 
And Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Jesus responded, If you recognized God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. But, but sir, you don't have a bucket in the well. It's, the well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father, Jacob, who dug this well. And he gave us this well and he drank from it himself and so did his sons and his, his livestock. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become, in those who drink it, a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. Well then, sir, give me this water so that I will never need to come here and draw water again. Go. Get your husband and come back here. I don't have a husband. You are right to say, I don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you are now with isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. Well, sir, I see that you are a prophet. So our ancestors, they worshipped on this mountain, but your people say that it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. (laughs) Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father... Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The Father looks for those who worship him in this way. God is spirit and it is necessary to worship God in spirit and in truth. Yeah, I, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach us everything. I am the one who speaks to you. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who has told me everything that I have done. Could it be that he is the Christ? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus, saying, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. I am fed by doing the will of the one who sent me and by completing his work. Don't you have a saying, four months, four more months, and then it's time for harvest? Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that those who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying. The one sows and another harvests. I have sent you to harvest what you didn't work for. Others worked hard, and you will share in their hard work. 
Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified. He has told me everything that I have ever done. So, when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, We no longer longer believe because because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. This story is the longest recorded conversation in the New Testament. At its center is Jesus, and right next to him, a woman, and they are gathered around an ancient historic well, Jacob's well. Now, this woman, if you noticed, is never given a name, and that's significant. She's a disregarded, anonymous Samaritan woman, a woman who needs water, which we all know that we need, right? But by the end of the story, we realize, along with the woman, that what she actually needs is much more than physical water. Living water. That's what she really needs. But at first, she doesn't really know that's what she needs. She's been drinking from the same well all her life, and so she's used to the water there. She doesn't even know there's better water out there. She doesn't even know there's a better life out there, and it's available even to someone like her. Actually, this woman's been drinking from two wells all her life. She's been drinking from the well of Samaritan culture, and she's been drinking from the well of her personal life. Both of these metaphorical wells contain water that's questionable at best. Water that's not up to code. Water that contains high levels of arsenic, perhaps. (laughs) That's for the property team. (laughs) What I mean is that she grew up in a culture that was polluted with wrong attitudes and wrong beliefs, which led to wrong actions. Quite naturally, her personal life got caught up in this vortex of falsehood, and it's been ruining her life. She's given up hope on finding a better life. She has stopped believing in the existence of living water that flows from the pure fountain of grace. That can't be true, she thinks. That's what she thinks until she meets Jesus. Before we look at their encounter, let's let's test the water from these two wells uh, and see if they have anything in common with the wells that we drink from. Let's start with the well of Samaritan culture. By the time the first century rolls around, the well of Samaritan culture has been poisoned with prejudice. The water has been muddied with misunderstanding. Discrimination was in the water that everyone was drinking, including the woman in our story. In particular, the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews had been ruptured, seemingly beyond repair. 
all of this prejudice, misunderstanding, and discrimination built up over centuries, it's all present in the conversation between the Samaritan woman and the Jewish man named Jesus. Put an African-American from the South in conversation with a Ku Klux Klan member, and you begin to feel what's in the air around Jacob's well when these two individuals interact. History of hostility. Now, I'll save you some of the historical details of the Samaritans. For those interested, check out 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. That's where we read about the origin of the Samaritan people. When we learn about the origin, we begin to understand the reasons for the prejudice. I won't give you the whole story, but here's the short of it. Basically, the Samaritans were a mixed group of people consisting of both ethnic Jews and ethnic non-Jews. And the pure-blooded Jews never got over this. If you recall, in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire conquered Israel, and they deported the Jews hundreds of miles east. Do you remember this history? But eventually, the Assyrian king brings back some of the Jews to the Holy Land. He resettles them in an area called Samaria. Now, he also resettles other groups of people in the same region. So we have in this Samaritan region, we have a melting pot of religion and culture. The pot includes ingredients from God's people, the Jews, but it also includes ingredients from pagan cultures. Now, together, this mixed group of folks who were settled in Samaria became known as Samaritans, and so are women. Eventually, they intermarried, and the non-Jews, get this, the non-Jews shed their skin of polytheism, and they adopted most of the religious beliefs of the Jews. Together, these Samaritans became devoted to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But it didn't matter to the pure-blooded Jews. Because of these mixed origins, the pure-blooded Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breds. Only we are the true Jews, the Orthodox Jews, the chosen ones, not the Samaritans. That's the attitude that developed. And it's partly true. The facts, not the attitude. The facts are partly true, but the attitude of superiority is never true. Here's what's true about what the majority of Jews believed about the Samaritans. In a real sense, the Samaritans had deviated from the ancient orthodoxy of God's people Israel. For example, the Samaritans believed only the first five books of the Bible— They rejected everything else, the Psalms, the prophets, even the history books. But they still worshipped the God of Israel, not in Jerusalem, but at Mount Gerasim. But they still expected a Messiah like Moses to come and restore all things. That explains the woman's words, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. But none of these shared beliefs between the Orthodox and the Samaritans, none of these shared beliefs mattered much. The Jews still viewed the Samaritans as half-bred heretics. So when the Orthodox Jews finally returned to their homeland from exile, listen to what happens. The Samaritans, remember, have, they've already been here for quite some time, and the Jews now are coming back 
home. And in a surprising act of hospitality, the Samaritans are waiting with open arms for their Jewish relatives. They are eager to welcome them home at first. They even extend a helping hand to their Orthodox neighbors. When the pure-blooded Jews return, the Samaritans offer to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. You can imagine the conversation. Brother, welcome home. Let us worship Yahweh together. Let us give thanks to Yahweh, the creator who rescued us from Egypt, who gave us the law through Moses. Brother, we realize that you no longer have a temple in Jerusalem, so we've been talking and, and we'd like to help you rebuild it. It's a gracious offer from the Samaritans. Tragically, here's the response of the Jews. No. No. We don't need your help. Stay away from us. Friends, the Jews refused the help of the Samaritans. The Samaritans extended a helping hand and the Orthodox Jews slapped it. Now let me ask, how do you like it when you're rejected? Huh? When you offer hospitality or kindness or love, and in return you get rejection or ridicule? My friends, on that day, bitterness planted deep roots in the hearts of both the Samaritans and the Jews. It was only a matter of time before this sense of superiority gripped the minds of the Samaritans as well. They too began to think of themselves and only themselves as the true Jews, the faithful descendants, the chosen ones, and all the rest besides their little enclave were heretics. There's always a backstory behind prejudice, isn't there? Fast forward to 128 BC. This is 160 years before Jesus and the woman's conversation. What happened in 128 BC was that the Jews were worshiping on their mountain in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans were worshiping on their mountain, Mount Gerasim. And that's the mountain referred to in our text when the woman says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. It's Mount Gerasim she's talking about. A temple was built there in 400 B.C., but in 128 B.C., 160 years before Jesus and the woman talk, this is what happened. The Jewish high priest, he destroyed the Samaritan temple. He destroyed it, he stripped it bare, down to the foundation, and it's now rubble. The rationale, proper worship must be conducted in Jerusalem alone. So let me ask, how do you like it when something you made is destroyed by someone else? And what if that something is dear and precious, even sacred to you? My friends, when the Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple, it put an end to all hope of reconciliation or even friendliness between the two groups. This act sealed a permanent rift between the two communities. That's why the gospel writer John summarizes their relationship in verse 9. Jews and Samaritans, they didn't associate with each other. And now you know why. It goes back to their nasty history. The roots of bitterness had borne the fruits of violence, and there seemed to be no turning back. That is until an unnamed Samaritan woman meets Jesus. But all that must be overcome in order for the woman to even give Jesus the time of day. 
Think about it, would you? Can you imagine the gut-wrenching prejudice she must have felt against Jesus, a Jew? A prejudice formed over centuries, and for some good reasons. The anger, perhaps the fear, she probably felt at the sight of this Jewish man at the well. Even the hatred. And you thought your neighbor had obstacles to overcome in order to give Jesus the time of day. Well, they do, but so did this woman all the more. Friends, this woman's cultural history has to be overcome in order for her to get a taste of the water that gives life, the water that would become in her a bubbling spring, bubbling up into eternal life. And it happens. But that's not even the half of it. Not only was the Samaritan culture poisoned with prejudice, the woman's personal well had also been tainted with the worst kind of hurt. Anyway, you read this story, the Samaritan woman is a broken woman. This woman has scars. However we fill in the background details of her life, the fact remains, the Samaritan woman has experienced one emotional upheaval after another. She is a broken woman, and she hurts. It's precisely her personal hurts that must be overcome in order for her to experience the new kind of life Jesus offers her. But she can't overcome them by herself. She needs a new way of seeing reality. She needs to dump her false narratives and prejudices. She needs to adopt Jesus' narratives. In order for her to drink flowing water from the fountain of grace, she must stop drinking the stagnant water of shame at least long enough for her to acquire a taste for something more, for Jesus, who gives living water. And so it is with us, isn't it? So what is this water that she's been drinking from her personal well? What are the details of this woman's past? Here's what we know from the text itself. We know that she's a Samaritan woman, and now we know all the cultural baggage she brings to her encounter with Jesus. We know that this woman understands and respects the cultural norms, which is more than we can say for Jesus. Her first response, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She's trying to follow the cultural rules of the day. Samaritans and Jews don't talk to each other. Women and men don't talk to each other unless they're relatives. And people like the two of them certainly don't share drinking vessels. What a scandalous thought. No wonder the disciples were shocked when they stumbled upon the scene. The woman respects these norms and she tries to obey them by interrupting Jesus. But Jesus does not. So we also know this from our text. We know that the woman is currently unmarried. And if you trust the consensus of scholars, we can infer that she's never had children. She's never been able to have children. But she's had five husbands. And this is where the interpreters go crazy. (laughs) What happened to her five husbands? The text honestly doesn't give us any clue. Did they all die? Did they all divorce her? If so, how much of the divorce was her fault? 
Or, or was she divorced because she couldn't give them children and they kicked her to the curb? The text answers none of these questions. Whatever the situation, the fact remains, this woman has been through, has been through one emotional hurricane after another. You don't go through five husbands without that being the case. Brokenness, hurt, and pain has, have defined her life thus far. Do you know a thing or two about brokenness, hurt, or pain? How is it affecting your interaction with Jesus? We don't know what happened to her last five husbands. But what we do know is that she currently has a man that's not her husband. That's the literal translation. She has a man. What kind of relationship do they have? Again, the text does not give us any clues. What this phrase, has a man, implies, frankly, we can't be sure. On the one hand, and this gets a little complex, see if you can follow. On the one hand, it's quite possible that this man she's staying with is the brother of her most recently dead husband. And they intend to marry, but they haven't had time. Did you follow that? <laughs> the man she's living with could be the brother of her recently deceased husband. I know that sounds strange and unlikely to our ears, but that's because we're unfamiliar with the ancient practice called leverate marriage. Leverate marriage is, is prescribed in the Pentateuch, and the Samaritans upheld that. If a man who doesn't have children dies, Deuteronomy 25 says, his brother must marry his wife and produce children for her brother. This is called a leverate marriage. Strange and unfamiliar to us, but not to Jesus' time. You may recall the Sadducees questioning Jesus about leverate marriage. You remember this? Suppose there were seven brothers and all died, then the woman died. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? <laughs> Is this what's going on here? It's quite possible. But on the other hand, it's possible that her relationship with this man is nothing more than a standard premarital affair. The woman receives material benefits for sexual favors. This is absolutely possible as well. This is the preferred interpretation by most scholars throughout the years, most male scholars, by the way. But it's been stated, I think, with far too much confidence. We don't really know from the text itself. To put it bluntly, many interpreters assume that this woman is this hypersexual whore who must have cheated on her husbands and that's why they divorced her. In my opinion, that interpretation says more about the interpreters than it does the text. But at the end of the day, we don't know. The text does not entertain our questions. It doesn't satisfy our desires for the juicy details of the woman's past. It's possible she's a woman of grief, widowed, kicked to the curb, and praying that this next man honors the lever at marriage. It's also possible that she's a woman with significant moral flaws, which led to five divorces, and now she continues to search for love and security by sleeping with another man. We don't know. But whatever we know... <laughs> We know that John doesn't think we have to get all the details right to get the point. The point is not what the woman was. The point is what the woman becomes. 
What the woman was is of some significance. She's a Samaritan. She's unnamed. She's disregarded. She has plenty of scars to show for the hard life she's lived. And she needs water. But she also needs much more than water. The well of her soul is all dried up, empty and parched. Where can she get what she needs? Where can she receive a better life? Where can she find love? Where is the fountain of grace from which pours forth living water? Aren't these our questions as well? Where can I get what I need? Where can I find what I want in life? What can make me happy? Where is the better life? Is it just around the corner? Or is it nothing more than a pipe dream? Is there such a thing as living water, abundant life? If so, please tell me where I can get it. Before I tell you, we need to look at our own wells, like the Samaritan woman. We need to overcome our cultural baggage and our personal hurts. Only then can we recognize the fountain of grace that's been right under our noses the whole time. So first, our cultural baggage. Maybe we should start by acknowledging that we, just like the Samaritan woman, we too have grown up in a culture of prejudice. Prejudice of all kinds. This prejudice... It's not the result of any single individual's moral fault. Rather, it's, it's in the water that we've been drinking all these years. We've been drinking discrimination on account of the history of our nation, and nobody wants to admit it. There exists what's called learned ignorance. Theologians talk about it. Psychologists talk about it. Learned ignorance says that we're basically ignorant of any history that doesn't tilt in our favor. We remember the great principles and the courageous adventures and the faithful spirits of our ancestors, as we should. But we forget the prejudice, misunderstanding, and even brutality of those very same ancestors. It's all well detailed in the historical account. So what's this have to do with drinking from the well of living water? Just this, we cannot drink in the new life of love Jesus has for us, at least not completely, at least not completely, until we stop drinking from the well of prejudice. There's always a backstory behind prejudice, isn't there? It was true for the Samaritans and Jews, and it's true for our country as well. Our backstory began with the Native Americans, and then it continued when greedy Africans kidnapped their African brothers and sisters, if you can imagine, and they chained them up and they sold them to industrious Dutch traders at first. And this wicked and cruel journey to America that these women and men and children, vulnerable as they were, this journey took about one in three of their lives due to the inhumane and unsafe conditions of the slavery ships. And friends, on that day, bitterness planted deep roots in the hearts of both black Africans and white Europeans. And now today, those roots of bitterness have borne the fruits of violence, have they not? 
We hear of riots all the time. We hear of Black Lives Matter. And we hear of white supremacist rallies. Did you know that just last week in West Lafayette, at the Unitarian Universalist Church, the church was vandalized by white supremacists. They hung up banners cursing African Americans with all sorts of wicked names. It all goes back to the nasty history we'd rather forget. A history of prejudice that's been in the water we've been drinking for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there seems to be no turning back, no way out, unless we come together to the fountain of grace and experience together the diverse flavors of living water offered to us by Jesus. Lord Jesus, tear out every remaining root of prejudice within us and replace it with your unconditional love. Steve was his name. He came to our church in Holland with his girlfriend and their two kids. They needed clothes and toiletries and basic necessities. So they came to the care closet of First Reformed Church in Holland, Michigan. Afterward, they were brave enough or hungry enough to join the congregation for the Wednesday night dinner. Now, unfortunately, none of the congregants were brave enough to sit with them. But Steph knows that I have this strange condition in which I like talking to strangers. <laughs> so I joined them, as did Stephanie. Now, the opening small talk was awkward. And then he said it. Without much time wasted at all, he named it. <laughs> like the Samaritan woman named it. Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Steve asked me, point blank, if I came to your church, would I be welcomed? Would I be accepted? Or would I get those looks? Steve is African American. First Reformed Church is not. The primary colors in the church are white and gray, but not a hint of brown or black. And Steve understood the cultural norms of the day, just like the Samaritan woman did. And Steve understood, like the woman, the history of prejudice and hostility and violence. And it was this bitter history that created an enormous obstacle for him. If Steve was going to give Jesus the time of day, at least in that church, can you imagine all he needed to overcome? I responded to Steve as best I could, trying, to, trying not to stumble over my discomfort. I hope so, I said. I hope that you'd be welcomed. Most everyone would love to have you join us for worship. But in all honesty, I don't know whether or not you'd get those looks. This began an unlikely friendship between Steve, an African-American, and me, a white pastor in a white church. But we were simply following a path, Steve and I, that were tread by Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus who crosses boundaries, Jesus who breaks cultural rules for the sake of the higher rule of love. Jesus who approaches the vulnerable, the hurt, the disregarded. Jesus who says to them and to us these words, everyone who drinks this water, this cultural water of prejudice, this water of shame from personal hurt, everyone who drinks this water, will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. This is the statement that turns the conversation around. Before this, the Samaritan woman was obviously suspicious. But after this, she addresses Jesus with the word curios, which is translated sir or lord. The progression of faith continues for the woman. She moves from suspicion to sir to I see you are a prophet. And then to come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this be the Christ? Finally, the progression of faith on account of Jesus' unlikely approach and gracious offer of, new, of a new way of life, this progression ends with a grand public declaration. After having persuaded much of her community to join in the creed to cross the bridge themselves of prejudice, together they boldly declare, this one, this Jesus, is truly the Savior of the world. <laughs> Friends, I'm here this morning to testify that there is such a thing as living water that flows from the fountain of grace. It's available to you and to me wherever you're at, at your progression of faith. Friends, Jesus Christ is living water. All who drink from his words will never go thirsty because all who drink from Christ Receive the Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit of love. Friends, the Holy Spirit is not just near to us, but by God's grace, it's put inside of us. And it bubbles up with joy inside of our souls and overflows with love to others. That's the offer of living water that Jesus gives the woman, and that's the offer that Jesus gives to us. The offer of the Holy Spirit becoming in us love. For all others. That's what the woman realizes. That's what the woman realizes she actually needs more than water. She needs the gift of the Holy Spirit put within her, and so do we. She needs God, and so do we. She needs not just God at a distance, but she needs God who draws near in Jesus. And God who makes it even more personal and intimate by entering us in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need too, isn't it? This is the eternal kind of life that begins now. It's a new way of life, a new way of seeing reality, a way that replaces all prejudice with complete love, a way that soothes all of our personal hurts with forgiveness and freedom and reconciliation, and release from shame and peace. Jesus wants you to have this living water. Are you thirsty for it? Do you want something that satisfies more than water? Do you desire that basic element we all need if we're to flourish as human beings? Friends, if so, then leave your water jar on the ground. Leave it at the feet of Jesus. All the water of our sinful culture and all the water of your broken past, 
drop it down like the Samaritan woman and don't even worry about whether it breaks or not. For Christ has already been broken for us and our pain, he has made his pain. So drop your jars and come to Jesus. Taste and see the water he gives for he gives to us his very self. Amen? Physical water can sustain our bodies for a time, but then they decay. But spiritual water from the fountain of Christ sustains our souls, which will never decay. And they become in us a spring of fresh water bubbling up into life everlasting. And that is the assurance and the comfort that Bill Kiger has, which we honored yesterday, and that Ruth Howe has, which they are leaning into deeply even now. So friends, may this be true for you and I. May the Spirit of God continue to flow and flow within us like a pristine river, giving refreshment and nourishment in a life that's worth living. Let us pray.